Welcome to Portraits of Honor. We stand in the swiftly fading shadow of our World War II veterans and heroes who united for a single purpose, to honor life, liberty, and justice for all. They were soldiers and sailors, airmen and mechanics, nurses and pilots, radio operators, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Our mission is to preserve their stories, to bring their experiences to life for a new generation. This is our tribute, our act of honor. Through their words, we explore the essence of honor and remember the sacrifices that were made. For just the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help us preserve their stories. Visit portraitsofhonor.com to learn more. Join us as we journey back in time, as we listen, learn, and remember. This is Portraits of Honor. Let the stories of these heroes begin. This interview is presented in two parts. This is part two. Join us as we listen to the incredible tale of B-17 gunner Lester Schrenk, from surviving a plane crash over Denmark and his year-long POW experience to his poignant journey six decades later back to the crash site. This trip takes an unexpected turn when he not only uncovers parts of his bomber, but also forms a remarkable friendship with Hans Hermann Muller, the German pilot who shot him down. This interview was recorded on October 26, 2022 in Bloomington, Minnesota. Can you, can you describe more on the, uh, the 86 day march? You were telling me earlier a few things. We were so weak from not having anything to eat, like, like I mentioned. Uh, for days at a time, you have absolutely nothing to eat. Uh, oh, even even in Salag Lift uh, Four, I could I'll have to describe what they give us to eat for a while. Uh, it came in a tin can, no label or anything, and we think what it was was the residue of codfish. After the livers, after they extracted the oil, it was a gray paste, and uh, what made it so bad was this is summertime. The German guards would run their bayonets through it, leave it lay out in the sun for a couple of days, and then give it to you. And when you get it, the, the place where the uh, bayonets had entered was just a foaming mass and you it had the smell of rotten fish and of course the taste of rotten fish you had two choices either eat it or starve okay. and that's what they fed us for about two months mm. and like a lot of times they would give you soup so-called soup what it was it was made out of clover boiled clover that was your, that was your meal, and I don't mean the blossoms. I mean just the clover, the way it came from, bugs yeah. and everything. Not much there either. No. Uh, on the march, if you got the equivalent of uh, one potato, but I'll have to, I have to explain how the potato was done. The Germans cooked potatoes for their pigs. 
will you save the place? That's exactly what they did. They, they put the potatoes in this cooker. They were always way overcooked where they were just absolute mush. And of course the potatoes had been scooped in there right out of the field. So they had a good amount of dirt on them. And if you got the potato from the bottom of the vat, it was more dirt than what it was potato. And there's minerals in that, right? Oh, you bet there were minerals in there. <laughs> um. But some of the guys got so desperate from being hungry that they actually ate dirt. Just plain dirt. You have no idea what it's like to have hunger pangs from the time you're captured to the time you, you're liberated. I think you were telling me too a little bit about on the march. Obviously, everybody didn't make it through the march. That's right. If you if uh, you couldn't keep up, a German guard would stop back with the prisoner. You hear a gunshot, and uh, the guard would again join the unit. Uh, you have never seen such heroism. Um, some of the guys that you'd hardly put one foot ahead of the other would literally carry their buddy on their back just so he wouldn't get shot, knowing fully well that they would never get a medal or anything, never be recognized for their, for their deed. But those are the guys that really needed the medals, are the ones that sacrificed their own life for their friends. Where did the, uh, the march end? It ended in um, a little town called Boze, Germany, which is um, just east of uh, Hamburg. And we were liberated by the, by the English. And uh, how did that go down? <laughs> what, what, did, well, what did you do? There, there were marching us every day, except one day the Germans gave word that we weren't going to march the next day. And we had no idea why. I mean, we were just elated because we didn't, you know, we had one day of rest. We got up that morning and um, started marching as usual. And all of a sudden we saw a contingent of pe people coming from the other way carrying white, white flags. Mm -hmm. And when we got up, the, the I was the interpreter for our group, and the German officer that I was interpreting for came up to me and he shook my hand and he says, now we're prisoners and you're free. It was just as sudden as that. I have no inkling of it going to happen or anything. And then we were told we had, I think it was, it was quite a distance. We would have had a march around 20-some kilometers. And um, my buddies and, and myself started marching down the road in the direction they said we'd have to go to, to get to the uh, English outpost. And um, we ran into a bunch of dead German soldiers on the way. And I, to this day, I don't know why, as weak as I was, I picked up one of the rifles. And we kept on going, and we came to a farmhouse, and I saw a couple horses out in the yard. And I said to my friends, I said, stay here, I'm going to go and see if I 
can't get the, some kind of transportation that we don't have to walk anymore. And I rapped on the door and this woman answered the door and I told her I wanted to see the meister of the house. And oh, she pleads with me, don't, don't hurt, don't hurt me. I'm a slave laborer from Poland. And I assured her that we do her no harm whatsoever. And when the guy appeared, I told him, I said, I see some horses on your yard and we have to go to such and such a town. And I said, we're, we're not walking there. We're using your horses. Oh, we pled with me, don't, please don't take my horses, they're lame. And I said, we're taking your horses. Then he pleads with me, he says, well, he says, what if I give you a ride in my uh, tractor and wagon? I said, that'll be just fine. So th they had um, what they called tractors, but what they really were, they were one cylinder outfit that they used for transportation. They didn't really use them like, like we use our tractors, but um, they were one cylinder and he had, a, he had up a glow plug with the, with a blowtorch first, and then they would crank it with the flywheel, but every once in a while it would start backwards. It would run just as well forward as backwards. And if that happened, they'd have to shut it off and, and start all over again. Anyway, he uh, rented the uh, tractor, and I told my, all my buddies to get in. And along the way, I met him pick up every straggler that along the way. And when we got to the outpost, I, I thanked him. And I said, now you can return to your home. I forgot to ask this. Do you know how many men and prisoners were on this march, approximately? About 6,000. Wow. But we were all in small groups. They had uh, divided us all into groups of about uh, 250, 300 each. Uh, so we weren't all together. Do you know how many survived that march? Uh, even the U.S. government doesn't know. So it would be hard to keep up. Yeah. Um, because there were so many people that were killed when they bailed out and everything. And uh, the German farmers would, uh, well, in fact, if you bailed out and a German farmer caught you, he, he would uh, kill you with a pitchfork, uh, bury you, and that was the end of it. So uh, even our own government doesn't have no idea. Hmm. Because there's a good many of them, I'm sure, even to this day, buried out in the woods somewhere, nobody had any idea where they're at. Um, so when you reached the, uh, I guess it was the British outpost, after they uh, took you on their wagon, uh, what happened then? The English treated us like kings. They took real good care of us. Uh, they gave us... Uh, their uniforms to wear, and um, then they kept on telling us, we've uh, notified the, uh, the Americans and they should be here any, any day now to come to pick you up. For some reason, nobody came to pick us up. And um, the English got so desperate for food uh, most people don't realize this, but the English were rationed to two meals a day. Even the military soldiers had two meals a day instead of three like we did. 
and there were more of us prisoners than what they were English, so we were eating them out of house and home. And at last, in sheer desperation, they called in the Royal Air Force and literally dumped us at the nearest U.S. base. <clears throat> when they dumped us at the U.S. base, the Americans said, we don't know what we're going to do with you. We've got no place for you at all. You're, you're just going to have to go out and find any, any place for you to sleep because we haven't got any bedding, any, anything. So my buddies and I found a, a bombed out hotel and of course it had no coverings or anything. We slept on the floor with no blankets, no nothing. And it was colder than hell because it was still early spring. Yeah. But for some reason, our own government it, it treated us just like dirt. And that's one thing I still re resent today. Uh, they took us to Camp Lucky Strike. We were confined to a tent. There were four, four people in a tent, and they were slept on canvas cots. All we had was uh, the things that the English gave us, so we froze our butts off. Uh, there was no heat or anything in the tent, no, we had no blankets, like I said, we haven't any provision for you at all. Uh, and we were con confined to that tent. They would wake you up like one or two o'clock in the morning and say, it's your time to eat. Of course, the food was very good, but uh, our stomach it, it were in such a condition that the minute you'd eat anything, you'd feel real full. An hour later, you'd feel real hungry. Mm. So again, we, we were just absolutely miserable. And uh, we still had our English uniforms on because they, they had given us none. And what really irritated us, that the German POWs that were working on the camp all had American uniforms. We didn't. Wow. So, I mean, that was just another irritant. So one day, an um, uh, airplane landed, an uh, uh, American airplane landed, and I said to the guys, I'm, I'm going to see if I can't get the heck out of here. And I uh, walked up to the pilot, and I said, uh, Sir, you don't happen to be fly flying back to England, do you? And he said, as a matter of fact, he says, yes, I am. And I said, can I hitch a ride back with you? And he looks at me, and of course, I'm, I'm in the English uniform, and he figures that I'm on my way back home. He said, well, yes, you can, but he says, are all your papers in order? I said, yes, sir, they sure are. <laughs> I didn't have a single thing. <laughs> And then he says, uh, well, meet me back here. And he says, I think I can give you a ride back. That's the way I got back home, was hitchhiking my way back home. Was it just you? Just me. Well, after I was in England, um, I had a girlfriend there, so I was hanging out at the Red Cross. And uh, within about three, four days, all kinds of guys, my buddies, and all of a sudden showed up. They all did the same thing I did. And we were there for maybe oh, a week or two. And we figured, well, this can't go on forever. We're going to have to turn ourselves in sooner or later. So 
we decided if we all uh, go together and all turn us out at one time, there isn't much they can do. If we go individually, they'll throw the book at us. And of course, we went there and they gave us holy hell. And we're sending you to Southampton here, confined to the barracks. They sent us to Southampton. We'd post one guy at the barracks and all the rest of us would be in town having, having beer. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the way it ended. I like your ingenuity. That's what you need that to make it through. I got by with it. Yeah. Wow. Phew. Uh, so you got back to England. In June. June of 45? Yep. But I didn't get home till, uh, well, that must have been late June, because I didn't get home till uh, July 28th of 45. Okay. And of course, we've been liberated May 2nd. Wow. So, I mean, they, they weren't in any hurry to get us home. They weren't so then, so then um, they sent us home for recuperation and supposed uh, to report um, in San Antonio. This is in October. And uh, believe it or not, I wanted to re enlist. They took one look at me and said, you, you, you're too skinny. <laughs> they, wouldn't, they wouldn't let me re-enlist. Re My uh, discharge today reads, con uh, discharge for the convenience of the government, because I, I didn't weigh enough. Wow. <laughs> wonder why I didn't weigh enough. <laughs> I wonder how much, how much weight you lost through all that, um, you know? I can't tell you exactly, but when I uh, was shot down, I weighed 185 pounds. Several days after we were liberated, and I mean this is about a week or so after, I weighed 93 pounds. Wow. You lost half your weight. Yep, just about half. Years later, you were able to go back and make a return and visit your crash site, for one, in Denmark, mm -hmm. and then you had a very interesting reunion with um, a particular German. So, um, when was it you went back to Denmark? In the year 2004. And uh, what did you want to do there? Um, well, I'm going to back up a little bit. Uh, I got my first computer in, uh, around the year 2000 and uh, there was a website called b24.net and uh, I was um, mucking around with that and I ran into two gentlemen that were talking about the air raid of the day we shot down and uh, I excused myself and told them that I was very interested in that I had been one of the crew members on uh, that mission and of course that, that just lit them up and uh, the one fellow said uh, that he would try to put me in touch with the uh, Danish farmer where our plane crashed and of course that put me on the right track and uh, soon uh, this man, his name is um, 
uh, Niels Moller was, was the one, the son of the person that had been on that farm when our plane crashed. And he was very interested in corresponding with me. So we were emailing back and forth. And of course, he invited my wife and myself uh, for a visit. And when we got there, they treated us just like a king. They even had, um, his brother had a lake cabin and they let us use the whole lake cabin. And the um, guy that owned the lake cabin wasn't there when we got there, but I still remember. We came in and there's a note on the table that said, we hope you enjoy our hospitality. Whatever, you, whatever food or drink you find, consider it yours. Do use anything that you wish, which I thought was very, very nice of him. And they uh, had metal detectors, and they took us out in the field where the airplane had crashed, and we found all kind of artifacts, including the uh, uh, identification from our airplane. And also one of the control handles from my ball turret. So this? It's mounted on wood right now, but it's, bad, it's very badly bent. It used to be covered with rubber, and uh, even it had a little uh, rubber across the uh, trigger. Yeah. This is where I would have maneuvered the turret. I would have had one on both hands, mm -hmm. and when I wanted to fire the guns, I would have depressed this lever to fire the guns. That is so cool. Amazing that you found that. Yes, it is. Uh, they tell me that um, the school kids had projects of uh, finding wreckage from various crashes, and school kids had scoured that same property a number of years, and yet we go there and find two of the main things that we were interested in, one being the ID plate from the airplane, and the other, of course, being one of my control handles. Yeah. Um, this, this is the ID plate, and you can see it's badly burned, but you can still very much see that was a B-17G, and you can see the serial number very, very plainly. There was a film crew there that um, recorded the whole event, and then uh, at, the, at one of the meals there, I had mentioned that when we were first captured, that I thought it was the German pilot that came to look us over. I found out later I was wrong. But I said, even at that time, I would have liked to have talked to the German pilot. And one of the relatives that was there says, I'll help you find him. And he is the one that actually spent four and a half years searching for the German pilot. He was told many times that uh, he had died a number of beers before, but uh, that didn't deter him one bit for trying to find the pilot. And I guess in Germany they had uh, their former people very well guarded where just ordinary persons can't locate somebody, but he was using the excuse that um, he had an American friend that wanted to put 
flowers on his grave for saving his life. And that he finally persuaded one German uh, to give him a little bit more information uh, of where he could find, find the pilot. And when he called, of course, he still thought the pilot was dead. This woman answered the phone and he, he again told her that he had an American friend that wanted to put flowers on her husband's grave because uh, during the war he had saved his life. And the woman says, what do you mean on my husband's grave? He's sitting right alongside of me. <laughs> oh. oh, I found out later that the German that broke down and gave him uh, the information he needed got fired from his job. Hmm. Unfortunately. Well, I'm glad you were able to find him. I was too, because he turned out to be a very, very nice person. I contacted him. We, we uh, uh, exchanged several emails, and uh, he finally wrote me a very nice letter saying that if I had the opportunity, he would like to meet me. Yeah. Then, uh, somehow, the same company that did the recording of uh, the crash site got involved, contacted me and said they would pay our way to, if they could film us meeting the German pilot. Yeah. So we got a nice free vacation, 100% paid. Very good. And uh, so in 2012... That was in 2012. You went to Heidelberg. Yes. To meet... Did, what's his name? Hans Hermann Muller. And could he speak English? He could speak German. I mean, English just as plain. And I found out that he had worked for NATO. And that's where he learned his English. Okay. He had flown for NATO for a number of years. But you could speak German as well. Right? Oh, certainly. And, and how is it that you knew German? I meant to ask you that before. But. Um, my great, great grandparents came from Germany. My grandparents mostly spoke German. The only problem was um, they both died. Um, I think one of them died when I was 10 and the other one when I was 12. So, And then to make matters worse, we lived on a farm. They lived in the, in the town. So the only time we'd get to see them is uh, usually we'd, we'd go to church and then stop at that place for a, a little while. Of course, they did come out to the farm once in a while, but I mean, I had not that much contact with them. So uh, then make things even worse. Uh, so many things hadn't been invented or anything, so they would just substitute an English word when they were speaking German. But when I got captured, I learned my German very, very quickly. <laughs> I bet you did. So you went to Heidelberg, and what was it? Describe that first meeting with uh, with uh, Mr. Muller. Um, it was at his daughter's house, and she had a mansion. I don't know. She must have been very well 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 to do, but. Uh, they were all very cordial and everything had a great big dinner for us 
and uh, it was a very, very nice, we had a very nice time. He later invited us to his place and showed his, showed us his, all his medals and everything, which I understand most Germans never do, but he made the exception for us. Well, uh, of course you had communicated before you actually met face to face, but uh, what was the mood there? Was, you know, was there a little bit of nervousness, or were you? I think, you, I think right off the bat, we were a little bit nervous to, to how the other one felt. But the minute we met each other, that completely disappeared. And uh, like I said, we had a very, very wonderful time. Uh, he, he took us for a, a great big boat, and everything he did was prepaid. I mean, he wouldn't let us pay for a thing. He took us for a, a nice long boat ride, uh, viewing the uh, castles along the Neckar River, and also a tour of, uh, it's a great big uh, castle that's right in the city of Heidelberg. And it was really very, very interesting. Right up my alley. <laughs> That sounds wonderful, and... Um... Oh, I wish I could show it to you. He even sent back a, uh, a bottle of liqueur. Um, it's called Goldwasser, in other words, gold water. Um, there's gold leaf so, so thin that it actually suspended in the liqueur. Really? I mean, you have to shake the bottle, but it'll stay suspended for quite some time. Uh, I've never seen anything like it, but he sent that back with us. Hmm. And did he, uh, I suppose he filled you in on his side of the story. Uh, I was asking him, I said, uh, I said uh, when we were shot down, I said, I never even got to shoot at your plane. He says, no wonder, he says, you, you were in the ball turret on the bottom of the plane. He said, I made a shallow dive. He said, you never would have been able to see me. And so he, he remembered exactly where he was, exactly everything, right down to the minute of, of when we were shot down. From what I remember watching the doc documentary is he could have shot you down over Oh yes, oh yes, he said, I asked him about that, he said, he says, I saw you were, I saw your plane was crippled, he says, and you were out of the war, he said, why should I keep on shooting, he said, that, that is not a gentleman's way of doing it, is what he said, and so he but, but most, most German pilots would have kept right on firing. Yeah. He was very much the exception. In fact, uh, a number of German pilots, if you were hanging there in your parachute, they would shoot you right, while you were in the air. Hmm. So I think he was, he, was, he was brought up right. Yeah. So you were very, and you consider yourself very fortunate. Exactly. You could have died over the sea or in the yep. sea. That's where I get for saving my life. He, he actually saved my life by not continue, continue to shoot. Yeah. That's the reason I wanted to thank him. Yeah. So many people say, well, did he apologize to you? 
Well, why should he apologize to me? I was trying to shoot him just as much as he was trying to shoot me. But like, like we all say in that video, you notice both of us say, saying that you were not shooting at a person, you were shooting at an airplane. Mm -hmm. Anything else related to that, that meeting that you wanted to share? No, except uh, several people from uh, Denmark actually came to visit us, and so did his granddaughter, the, the German palace uh, granddaughter. And, and of course, I'm still uh, in touch with all of them, yeah. except Hans Hermann, of course, who died. In, uh, he, he was 99 years old when he died. And our correspondence with him almost to the time of his death, except he suffered from a stroke and was incapacitated where, uh, I guess, he, he, he couldn't speak English anymore for some reason. He, he forgot all his English and uh, he, he couldn't correspond anymore at all. And then they, shortly after that, he passed away. Okay. And that was about three or four years ago. Well, we're so grateful for you sharing the story. Uh, first of all, you've been able to, to make it through all of that. Uh, not many people can say that. And uh, to be able to reunite in such a way of, you know, shows the forgiveness of the human heart. Um, I don't think you ever, it doesn't sound like you ever held a grudge against him. Oh, absolutely not against him, no. But uh, it, you, you'll, you'll find that it's always better to have a friend than an enemy. This podcast is a charitable supported public service. To learn more about the veteran featured on this podcast, please go to portraitsofhonor.com. There you'll find more stories, portraits, and ways to be part of this act of honor. Every day, a few hundred World War II veterans pass away, and soon they'll all be gone. For the cost of a few cups of coffee each month, you can help us support the mission to give all these deserving veterans their portrait of honor and record and memorialize their stories forever. Please go to portraitsofhonor.com today to make your donation and show your support. Leave us a review and share this episode. By remembering the past, we can inspire a better future. Join us next time on Portraits of Honor.